Welcome to Briefly Legal, your podcast briefing on legal news, developments, and legislation on the go. Brought to you by the attorneys of Crow and Dunleavy. The following should not be understood as or considered a substitute for legal advice. Visit CrowDunleavy.com for more information. Welcome back, everyone. It's your host, Adam Childers, here with the podcast Briefly Legal, brought to you by the law firm of Crow and Dunleavy. I'm here in the Crow's Nest in Oklahoma City, and today I'm going to be talking to all of you about forever chemicals. The reason I'm calling them forever chemicals is that they come with long acronyms that I don't entirely understand, things like PFOS and PFOA. And uh, when that happens, then I call upon uh, minds that are smarter than mine, scientifically tuned and ready to take on these kinds of issues, which is why I am going to be joined today by two members of the firm's Energy, Environmental, and Natural Resources Practice Group, those two individuals being Don Shandy and Tim Sawecki. Don, Tim, say hello to everybody out there. Hey, Adam. Glad to be here today. Also glad to be here with Tim. Hey, Adam. Thanks for having us. Hey, podcast world. Well, I'm glad you guys are here. I I said at the outset that uh, I get to talk about a lot of interesting things with a lot of interesting folks in this podcast, but rarely do I feel as far out of my depth as I do today, but that's okay. I know you guys are here to see me through this. We're going to be talking about something that has probably captured the imagination of anyone who's watched the movie Dark Waters that came out just uh, a few years ago, but it brought to mind an interesting little tidbit that I think will hook your interest, loyal listeners, as we talk about these forever chemicals. We're talking about something that is found in the blood of approximately 90% of Americans at any point in time and has been shown to cause health problems such as kidney and testicular cancer. If that doesn't get your attention, I don't know what will. But I'm glad, again, to have Don and Tim explain a little bit more about these chemicals, what regulations exist out there, and what companies need to be thinking about and doing to make sure that they're in compliance in a world that really doesn't have a lot of bright line tests and rules out there, which we'll talk about. It's good to have Don here. He brings a wealth of experience in this area. 35 years Don Shandy has spent in the energy and environmental and natural resources world. One of his uh, claim to fame is that uh, he's really done this kind of work literally all over the world. He's conducted work in this area in 41 of the 50 states and five different foreign countries as well, which is, I'm sure, why the University of Oklahoma School of Law tabbed him to be a professor within their oil and gas ranks, and also why Don has been asked by uh, more than one past administration, we won't go telling names today, but uh, asked to be part of environmental policymaking groups and administration roles. We were lucky that he said no and wanted to stick around these parts because he's a great guy to know and call one of our lawyers here within the group. I'm also happy to have with us, Tim. Tim is an associate attorney here in the firm, also works in our energy, environmental, and natural resources practice group. He's a bit of a transplant. I'm told that he uh, he followed a pretty geologist to find his way to our fair state. But he's a graduate of the University of Wyoming College of Law, and he also holds his Master of Arts from the University of Wyoming, the Hobbs School of Environment and Natural Resources. Between the two of them, I can tell you they know exponentially more about forever chemicals than I ever could, but I'm excited to learn more and share with all of you listeners 
what you need to know about these dangerous chemicals and where we go as a society when it comes to regulating them. So, Don, en- enough from me. Let's let's jump right on into this. I've given probably the world's most nebulous description of today's topic. So I'm going to give you a chance to kind of flesh it out a little bit more for us. What are we talking about when it comes to forever chemicals, PFOS, PFOA? Um, help us understand a little bit better. Well, Adam, first of all, I think it might be good to give the audience a little bit of history where these chemicals came from. And, and I'll keep using the terminology PFOS and PFO, and I'll, I'll let Tim explain a little more the detail around the science behind it. But just prior to World War II, DuPont was doing research on various chemicals. I don't know exactly what formulations they were looking at, at least as the way I have heard the story. These chemicals were developed almost by accident. But the PFOS and PFOA, and there's a large family of chemicals here. We're talking about thousands of compounds. As this chemical family was developed, it was actually used in the atomic bomb. Uh, because of its ability, it was an extremely slick lubricant, and it could withstand uh, heat at uh, very high levels. So, so DuPont, almost by accident, at least as we all understand it, developed the chemical, but it became a very, very important chemical in the life of every American. Because after the war, PFOS, PFOA chemicals were then uh, utilized to develop Teflon. Sure. So if, if anybody, for example, today walks into a store to buy a skillet that has what looks like Teflon, normally today it will say non-PFOS, non-PFOA. And the reason is, is because as time went on, this chemical or this family of chemicals was used in a number of, of different products. For example, in addition to Teflon, it's a water repellent. So it's used in Gore-Tex. Very, very effective uh, chemical. It's also used in a formulation in the fire prevention industry called AFFF. And the reason this chemical substance is used in the AFFF formulation for firefighting is because it's extremely effective at knocking fires down. But over the course of time, these chemicals, we also began to understand they're highly soluble. So if it gets into soil or anything like that, and you have rainfall, immediately it uh, makes a pathway typically to groundwater, or it can end up in surface water as a result of surface runoff. And that's where the real problems, I I suppose, begin. Hence the name of the the Ruffalo Flick uh, Dark Waters. Yes. Uh, Ominous sounding, and and for good reason, it sounds like. So, Tim, I was was promised an explanation uh, from your, your scientific background on what those acronyms really mean. So, so why don't you jump on in there and tell us a little bit about that and, and touch on some of the, the downside to these chemicals? Yeah, as, as Don mentioned, uh, after World War II, there was the post-war boom and that resulted in the manufacture and the commercialization of, of a lot of chemicals that prior to that, uh, strictly in the, in the research and development confines of companies such as DuPont and 3M. Um, what these companies had identified were halogenated compounds. If you recall halogens from your uh, high school chemistry class, that's uh, iodine, bromide, um, chlorine, 
flooring. And in this case, you, you beat me to those. I just wanted you to know. I, I was almost there, but, but, but go ahead. Just lining down the, the periodic table there. Um, but these particular compounds, as they're referred to as per or polyfluoral alkyl substances or PFOS, there it is. Um, are composed of a long carbon chain and then these covalent bonds attaching usually fluorine. And what that results in structurally is a very strong industrial chemical that has ubiquitous applications. As we saw, Scotchgard, Teflon, those chemical qualities result in something that is hydrophobic. It is afraid of water. Um, It is also afraid of oil. It's heat resistant. So it has all of these great high utility applications, but those same chemical qualities have resulted in a persistent bioaccumulative, and potentially toxic substance, PBTs, as us nerds refer to them as. (laughs) Um, So hence this wave of what we're seeing is concern for PFAS substances in soil, drinking water, um, and in other environmental media. And now we're seeing really a building wave of regulation that started basically 20 years ago, but now is the wave is really starting to build some momentum under the Biden and, and Harris administration. We're, we're about to see quite a bit of regulation that I know Don and I can riff on for, for quite a bit here. Yeah, you, you bet. And let me ask you, Don, where, when, when we're talking about it, it's soluble, it'll, it'll get into the ground surface and into water supplies. Are there, are there areas where we're seeing more of this happening? Is this something we see in Oklahoma? Is it, where should we be even thinking about these things? Well, we're really, Adam, in the infancy stage of understanding that, the answer to that question. But we do know that there have been already, with no firm regulatory cleanup level established yet. Now, I think that's coming in the, in the near future. As Tim mentioned, he's exactly right. EPA in Washington has been studying this chemical diligently for a number of years, and I expect the Biden administration will uh, certainly speed that process up. But we do know that it is present in certain groundwater aquifers around the country, There are various pathways that these substances can make uh, their way into the groundwater. And of course, the problem is a lot of areas around the country use groundwater as a source of drinking water. And probably for years, uh, this substance has been in certain groundwater formations and people have been ingesting the water. And as we've said, it's just extraordinarily difficult to remove from the environment, hence the term forever chemical. But it was largely not understood, even, I think, by the the industrial world in terms of its potential to contaminate the environment until really recent years. So do we have a standard out there in terms of how many parts per whatever exponential number is out there that should be in your system? That's a great question because – you know, one of the things that is is interesting, and as you track it, at least I track it in my career, working uh, in, in development of regulation and this whole arena of environmental law, there is a a health advisory level of seventy parts per trillion. That's with a T. That's with a T. All right. Now, when I first started. I'm much older than Tim. Tim Tim can deal in parts per trillion easily. But uh, when I started out, it was parts per million. And then we thought that we had reached the apex when these machines, uh, GCMS machines as they're referred to, 
could do analytical work at parts per billion. Now it's parts per trillion. And Adam, just yesterday, just yesterday, uh, a PhD chemist that works with us on a matter that, uh, that we are handling here at the firm, dealing with PFOS and PFOA, told me that he has reviewed data that was in the sub part per trillion range. The numbers are staggering in terms of what we're able to do analytically. And so it, it's been an evolution over time. It's been a sort of a slow process, but I think you're going to see this thing speed up dramatically. And Tim mentioned Administrator Regan at EPA, who was just confirmed in the Biden administration. He was the executive director in North Carolina and was very, very active in addressing PFOS PFOA issues in North Carolina. So I think as a matter of anybody listening that has concern, just be aware it is this whole area is going to accelerate from a regulatory standpoint. Tim, let's talk about that. You said there was kind of a wave of regulation coming. It sounds like, as usual, the legislation is not yet caught up to the science. But be that as it may, tell us about what the what, what are the biggies out there that are at least attempting to govern and, and, and enforce you know this area. Yeah, now we're into to my my favorite domain, the alphabet soup of federal environmental regulations. I think that as Don alluded to, this is is a high agenda item for for the Regan administration, the the new administrator for the EPA. In fact, on April 27th, he announced the formation of a PFOS working group that will have the deputy assistant secretary under the EPA for, I believe, their water principal deputy assistant administrator. That's a mouthful. Indeed. Um, We'll be overseeing that group and really kind of spearheading regulations devoted to PFAS. Now, specifically what those are going to look like, EPA has really been working hard since 2012 to identify PFAS contaminants that may become actual contaminants under the Safe Drinking Water Act. And this is a slow process of gathering data, investigating. And just this past year now, they have announced that two uh, specific PFAS, PFOA and PFOS, which are, are some of the older, the Teflon and the Scotchgard branded named PFOSs, um, will now be considered for potential contaminants um, in public water um, drinking supplies. That does not mean that it's a regulated contaminant at the moment, but there is a, a rulemaking procedure in place to, to list that under the Safe Drinking Water Act. The other big regulatory regime where we will see PFAS emerge over the next probably 18 months is the Comprehensive Environmental Response and Compensation Liability Act, CERCLA, Superfund as we know it, Mm -hmm. and the Resource Conservation and Recovery Act, RICRA as we know it. Under those regulatory regimes, we'll probably see it identified as a hazardous waste, which will be of particular interest to clean up response efforts once we identify sites where there is heavy contamination. Um, and then under RICRA, it will provide for how are we going to dispose of this these substances properly, which leads us to potential regulation here in Oklahoma that we saw this past legislative session in the form of proposed Senate Bill 622, which was going to be the Waste PFAS Waste Act. That proposed legislation did not ultimately pass this session. It was made dormant. But it shows that um, we're seeing considerable efforts on the state front to regulate PFAS as a waste 
or we could, we didn't see it in this proposed legislation, see it regulated under drinking water mandates. Again, that, that legislation didn't pass, but again, we're seeing kind of the, the writing on the wall here. And we've also seen, Tim, that's a great point, and the legislation in Oklahoma did not pass, and, and there's also been pending bills in state legislatures. In addition to federal action, the states can take action. Um, bills pending in probably 15 to 20 states around the country. Here in Oklahoma yesterday, I found out that even though the bill uh, did not make it uh, in terms of being passed as into law, there is a move where the Oklahoma Department of Environmental Quality will attempt to go ahead and move forward with regulations under its omnibus statutory authority at the DEQ to, uh, to regulate this material. So I, I think Tim is right. I think the, the first concern by Oklahoma, just using this state as an example, and I think most states are the same, they don't want to import this material into their landfills. And so you're going to see a lot of activity probably with the landfill companies around the legislation, as well as any potential regulation, because landfills are not created equal. Some are much, much more protective of the environment. And certainly if you were going to look at disposing of this material, you would want it to go into a landfill that's most protective, uh, which would have, you know, liners and collection systems if it releases from the landfill. The other thing I think is this important, and Tim and I have worked on this issue here at the firm, we keep talking about this forever chemical. And even if you, let's say you're an industrial facility and you want to dispose of this material, if you just find it's in a, in a waste stream, you could go potentially to a landfill. But some people have, or some industries have decided we'll take it to an incinerator. Mm. The problem, however, is that incinerators don't typically operate at temperatures hot enough to, to break the bonds and destroy the material. And so one concern that Tim and I have had, and we've discussed this a lot, is if you take this material to an incinerator, it's very possible that this material is going straight up in the air and out the stack and settling down at some point on property you know, near or not too far away from the incinerator facility. Rather so, than disposing of it, you might be you spreading might, it further than you ever it, had right. before. And breathing it. Yeah. Think about it, the people that are around that area. So it, it is posing a lot of difficulty out there from a policy and a regulatory perspective. And, and there are a lot of bright minds in this country that are trying to figure out what to do, but it is going to be controversial. And um, there's a lot at stake for a lot of uh, industry out there. Well, sure. And anytime you say Superfund, it catches the imagination and, and thoughts of those in the in the industry that you know don't want to be labeled as such and all and everything that goes with it. I'm sure there's big big lawsuits out there already, but it sounds like we're looking at a future where. You know, in the same way that states fight over water, you know, between borders, we're going to be fighting over landfills and, and who 
who gets to it. who caused it and, yeah. and who gets to bring it in, who gets to export it out. So maybe one of the best places to kind of finish things up is you've got a concerned uh, citizenry out there, but certainly in the business community, I'm sure there's a lot of thoughts about, well, then stop scaring me, guys. What what can we be doing to, you know, protect ourselves, uh, you know, when it comes to this wave of regulation coming our way? Tim, thoughts on, on what we should be telling the folks? Yeah, I, I think that, you know, as a potential a hypothetical business owner, I think my first concerns are with my operations and the people that I employ. And so in terms of my operations, I would be uh, auditing my supply chain. We see this more now than ever with where people are receiving their components for manufacturing assembly uh, may indicate whether or not certain of those substances, PFOS in this case, are in those plastic products or those air filters that you're receiving from overseas. So doing a supply chain audit would be um, imperative at this point in time to identify any risks from PFAS substances in your supply chain or in your goods. And at the same time, being aware that your employees are, are at a nexus with those potential risks. They may be handling PFAS substances and therefore con, you know, consulting your OSHA regulations and considering exposure limits and employing the right PPE um, and all sorts of employing operating procedures that will protect your employees. And then being proactive here, being engaged in the regulatory process as these potential regulations unfold is pennies on the dollar compared to enforcement procedures that you will have to lawyer up heavily for when inevitably certain regulations are promulgated um, related to PFAS. So um, proactive engagement, recognizing that this is a persistent chemical that isn't going anywhere and being proactive in addressing it because it, it could cause some serious material problems to, to your operations, your products and your business, your bottom line. This is truly a situation where the old saying, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure, seems to ring true. Absolutely. Well, it's a fascinating area and one that, frankly, we could have done two or three podcasts on to get through, but uh, we've depleted our time today. Maybe something we revisit in the future as these things continue to you know, garner more attention and, and we learn more about forever chemicals and how we can you know, comply with those regulations that are coming our way. Now, gentlemen, I, I don't want to use up all our time here without also introducing you to a, a little segment that I, I like to call Get to Know Your Crow. Uh, Tim, I was going to start with you. I, I have to profess I was a little bit uh, uh, worried about getting to share the stage with you and, and, and have a microphone in front of you because I'm told, and you can elaborate on this if you so choose, that you became a bit of a famous radio personality in your, uh, in your in days in Colorado in the early 2000s. Tell me about, about that experience. Yeah, in those uh, sunny halcyon days of, of 2005, if you uh, were frequenting the the uh, Roaring Fork Valley, otherwise known as the, the Aspen and Carbondale area of, of Colorado, you would have heard Tim Sawecki, who at that time was starting trying to start a raft guide company there in the Roaring Fork Valley on your morning radio station waxing about river flows and rapids and is the fishing good today or not 
and I was probably wearing flip flops <laughs> and living pretty free at the time. But I had a small stint as a as a radio personality. So I'm no stra- this is a, I'm no stranger to this, I guess. Just goes to show that uh, Tim and your uh, your loyal host uh, have other sides to our uh, to our character. Now, Don, I want to give you a chance uh, too. we were visiting earlier and, uh, you know, everybody always has an interest in is, you know, you, you ever run into somebody famous? And if so, did you ever have an occasion to kind of have a conversation with them that was that was meaningful at, at all? And I know your favorite op-ed writer, I believe, is George Will. Did, did, am I right that you had a chance to visit with him? I, I did. And, and actually, um, you know, I spent a lot of time in D.C. through the years. Um, I still pre-pandemic, I was traveling probably to Washington. I was up in Washington probably once a month. So I see a lot of people in the airport. I bet. Um, I could rattle off some names and and uh, met a couple of presidents and that sort of thing. But I love George Will. I think he's a fantastic writer. About three years ago, I was in National Airport and I look up and uh, the guy standing in front of me in a seersucker suit, I might add, uh, was George Will. So we ended up having, uh, before we boarded the plane, a a really interesting conversation. Uh, he is as bright in person as he is on the uh, using the written word, and and I found out also that his uh, his son uh, was a year behind my son in law school at the University of Virginia. What so, a small world! So I, George Will and I have a lot in common. I guess that's <laughs> that's the bottom line. That is the takeaway that I, that I will take from that. That's to be sure. Well. Fascinating tidbits to know about both of you and really a fascinating topic to uh, discuss today. I am reminded, as always, what a privilege it is to be at this firm and be surrounded by such bright minds, inquisitive minds, and people that are really dedicated to finding out all the nooks and crannies of the laws in their particular areas. It's a real credit to uh, both of you guys and um, real credit to the firm and I know a, a great resource to the Oklahoma business community. So uh, I want to thank both of you, Don and Tim, for your time today. Really appreciate everything that you've done to uh, uh, help us out with the podcast today. I uh, want to remind all our loyal listeners, if you have a topic that you'd like us to discuss in the future, just shoot us an email at legal at crowdunlevy.com. Also, all of our social media links are included in the show notes, so don't forget to follow us there as well. Well, that's a wrap for today on this beautiful spring day. We want to thank you for joining us today, and we hope that you stay safe and healthy. This is your host, Adam Shoulders, and we look forward to meeting you here next time on Briefly Legal.